0: Good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to the 2018 Christmas episode of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and today, I will be your guide on a journey through Christmas past. Sure feels good to be back behind the microphone again doing this introduction, and now, just because this is a bonus episode between seasons, doesn't mean we won't start the way we always do, and that's with an iTunes review. Time Honored Stories Told with Timeless Skill by Stephen J. 54. This is an immersive and nuanced experience. Classic stories brought to life by a talented storyteller who obviously appreciates the material and takes pride in his craft. Perfect for a long car ride or as a backdrop to make everyday monotony interesting again. Well done. Many thanks to J. 54 for the kind words. I used to work with a guy named J. It is certainly a small world. Now, we've got a few more reviews lined up for season two, but don't let that stop you from leaving your own review. There is certainly plenty of room for more. You can also get in touch with the show on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at SYYpodcast. You can contact me through any of those methods or through SYYpodcast at gmail.com with requests or your own original short story. I enjoyed talking with everyone, so don't be shy. Speaking of which, a big shout-out to Paul and Michael, who recently liked the show's Facebook page. Now, you know I like a good story, and I imagine you do too, so let's check in with another podcast that tells stories and here the stories are true. Now, here's Kit from Whispered True Stories.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Kit Karen. You might know me as the co-host of the Forgotten News Podcast. Or to remember the name of the show, Whispered True Stories. Thank you for listening.
0: Well, now that you know how to interact with the show and you know where to find your Whispered True Stories, let's get into this special Christmas episode. Today I will present to you two stories. The first is called The Gift of the Magi, which is probably the most well known story from O. Henry, who made an appearance on this program in episode 19 of season 1. So if you need a refresher on your O. Henry history, you can certainly find that episode in the back catalog, which lives in the same place you found this episode. How convenient. So since you know where to find your O. Henry primer, let's talk about The Gift of the Magi. The Gift of the Magi was first published on December 10, 1905 in the New York Sunday World. The New York World was a newspaper that ran from 1860 to 1931. The paper went through a couple of owners at first, but in 1883, It was bought by Joseph Pulitzer, whose name you probably recognize as the basis for the Pulitzer Prize. Another name associated with the publication is Nellie Bly, whose name might also be familiar. She was a pioneering investigative journalist, and she traveled around the world in 72 days as a kind of publicity stunt inspired by Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. And she also reported on the operations of a mental hospital uh, from within by posing as a patient. So after Joseph Pulitzer died in 1911, He passed the paper on to his sons, who ended up selling the paper in 1931, at which time it was dissolved and folded into another paper called the Evening Telegram. And that paper was then renamed the New York World Telegram, very original. If you're familiar with O. Henry's works, you're probably familiar with this one, as it's been adapted several times. In fact, I remember seeing a play when I was a kid that was an adaptation of this story. The Gift of the Magi would be included in O. Henry's collection called The Four Million in 1906. One more note on this story, you'll notice that I've got a special guest as the voice of Della. For that, my heartfelt thanks go out to my good friend Sharon Jewel. I've been waiting for an excuse to invite Sharon on the show, and this story gave me that opportunity, so I'm thrilled that she was able to help out. I've known Sharon for a long time, and she is a very talented actor, which is why I wanted to get her voice in the story. You can also see some of her work on her YouTube channel at youtube.com slash jewel 26 that's... M-I-S-S-J-E-W-E-L-L-2-6. She's also got a series on that channel called Me and My Big Hair, where you can see how she manages costuming and hairstyles for different situations. You can also visit her Instagram at Jewel.Sharon. Of course, I'll have links to all that in the show notes, and I would very much encourage you to check them out. Our second story today is called How Christmas Came to the Santa Maria Flats, and it is written by Elia Wilkinson Patey, now, I say Patey, I'm not actually sure if that's the correct pronunciation. It's spelled like Beatty, but with a P, so I'm going with that. It may be wrong. If it is, I am sorry. Elia Patey lived from 1862 to 1935. She was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan, but moved to Chicago upon getting married, at which point she began a long career as a newspaper columnist. She started out as a reporter for the Art and Society pages of the Chicago Tribune, and the paper was also where her husband Robert worked. The couple actually continued to work at the same paper for many years. In 1888, Robert was offered a position at the Omaha Daily Herald in Omaha, Nebraska, and Elia accepted a position simultaneously with the Herald as a staff correspondent. In 1890, she was given her own column, which she would continue to write until 1896. Now, this was a big deal at the time, as she was given a platform to speak about issues in society, uh, things like prostitution, capital punishment, the Wounded Knee Massacre, and other hot-button topics. The family moved back to chicago in 1896 where Elia served as a literary critic for the tribune for another 21 years ellia was a prolific writer of stories outside her extensive newspaper work as she would churn out stories to supplement the family's income on a few different occasions there was apparently one period in which she wrote a hundred stories in a hundred days in order to finance some home remodeling the paydays retired in the early 1920s and robert died in 1930 at the age of 73 followed by Elia's passing in 1935, also at the age of 73. As for her story, How Christmas Came to the Santa Maria Flats, the story was first published in 1899 in a volume called Icary Anne and Other Girls and Boys, which was a collection of Christmas stories. Now one more thing before we get into the stories this week. Make sure you stay tuned after the stories so that I can tell you about another collaboration I'm doing. I think you'll enjoy this one quite a lot. But for right now... Those were the authors and the stories behind the stories, and this is today's presentation. The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry $1.87, that was all, and 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher, until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. And the next day would be Christmas. There was nearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles— with sniffles predominating. (laughs) While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letter box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young, The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity, when its possessor was being paid thirty dollars per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to twenty dollars, the letters of Dillingham looked blurred, as though they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good." Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she only had $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim her Jim, Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an eight-dollar flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing the reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again, nervously and quickly, Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sophroni, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, Chilly hardly looked at the Sophroni.
2: "'Will you buy my hair?'
0: asked Della. "'I buy hair,' said Madam. "'Take your hat off, and let's have a sight of the looks of it.' Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars!' said Madam, lifting the mass with a practiced hand.
2: "'Give it to me quick,'
0: said Della. "'Oh, in the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present.' She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value, the description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within forty minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror, long, carefully, and critically.
2: "'If Jim doesn't kill me,'
0: she said to herself,
2: "'before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do—oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents?'
0: At seven o'clock, the coffee was made, and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair away down the first flight, and she turned white just for a moment. She had a habit for saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered,
2: Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty.
0: The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only twenty-two, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for, He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him.
2: Jim, darling, she cried. Don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again, you won't mind. Will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you.
0: "'You've cut off your hair?' asked Jim, laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor.
2: "'Cut it off and sold it,' said Della. "'Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I?'
0: Jim looked about the room curiously. "'You say your hair is gone?' he said, with an air of almost idiocy.
2: "'You needn't look for it,' said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy, be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs on my head were numbered.
0: She went on with sudden serious sweetness.
2: But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on Jim?
0: Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He unfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year. What is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell. he said. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going for a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs. a set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell, with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear and the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers. But the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say,
2: My hair grows so fast, Jim.
0: And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh! Oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit.
2: Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it.
0: Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, Let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. <laughs> I sold the watch to get money to buy your combs, and now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat, who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they, are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. How Christmas Came to the Santa Maria Flats by Elia W. Payton. There were twenty-six flat children, and none of them had ever been flat children until that year. Previously, they had all been home children, and as such, had of course had beautiful Christmases in which their relations with Santa Claus had been of the most intimate and personal nature. Now, owing to their residence in the Santa Maria Flats and the lease, all was changed. The lease was a strange forbiddance, a ukase issued by a tyrant which took from children their natural liberties and rights. Though to be sure, as every one of the flat children knew, they were in the greatest kind of luck to be allowed to live at all, and especially were they fortunate past the lot of children to be permitted to live in a flat. There were many flats in the great city, so polished and carved and burnished and belacquied, that children were not allowed to enter within the portals, save on visits of ceremony in charge of parents or governesses. And in one flat, where Cecil de Coven-le-Baron was born, Just by accident, and without intending any harm, he was evicted along with his parents by the time he reached the age where he seemed likely to be graduated from the go-kart, and yet that flat had not nearly so imposing a name as the Santa Maria. The twenty-six children of the Santa Maria flats belonged to twenty families. All of these twenty families were peculiar, as you might learn any day by interviewing the families concerning one another, but they bore with each other's peculiarities quite cheerfully, and spoke in the hall when they met. Sometimes this tolerance would even extend to conversation about the janitor, a thin creature who did the work of five men. The ladies complained that he never smiled. "'I wouldn't so much mind the hot water pipes leaking now and then,' the ladies would remark in the vestibule rustling their skirts to show they wore silk petticoats. "'If only the janitor would smile. But he looks like a cemetery.' "'I know it,' would be the response. "'I told Mr. Wilberforce last night that if he would only get a cheerful janitor, I wouldn't mind our having rubber instead of Axminster on the stairs.' You know we were promised Axminster when we moved in, would be the plaintive response. The ladies would stand together for a moment, wrapped in gloomy reflection, and then part. The kitchen and nursemaids felt on the subject, too. If Carl Carlson would only smile, they used to exclaim in sibilant whispers as they passed on the way to the laundry, if he'd come in and joke while we was washing. Only Kara Johnson never said anything on the subject because she knew why Carlson didn't smile, and was sorry for it, and would have made it all right. If it hadn't been for Lars Larsen. Dear, dear, but this is a digression from the subject of the lease. That terrible document was held over the heads of the children as the Haradian pronunciamento concerning small boys was over the heads of the Israelites. It was in the least not to run, not to jump, not to yell. It was in the least not to sing in the halls, not to call from story to story, not to slide down the banisters and there were blocks of banisters so smooth and wide and beautiful that the attraction between them and the seats of little boy's trousers was like the attraction of a magnet for a nail. Yet not a leg, crooked nor straight, fat or thin, was ever to be thrown over these polished surfaces. It was in the least, too, that no peddler or agent or suspicious stranger was to enter the Santa Maria, neither by the front door nor the back. The janitor stood in his uniform at the rear, and the lackey in his uniform at the front, to prevent any such intrusion upon the privacy of the aristocratic Santa Maria's. The lackey who politely directed people and summoned elevators, and whistled up tubes and rang bells, thus conducting the complex social life of those favorite apartments, was not one to make a mistake and admit any person not calculated to ornament the front parlors of the flatters. It was this that worried the children. For how could such a dear, disorderly, democratic rascal as the children's saint ever hope to gain a pass to that exclusive entrance and get up to the rooms of the flat children? You can see for yourself, said Ernest, who lived on the first floor, to Roderick, who lived on the fourth, that if Santa Claus can't get up the front stairs and can't get up the back stairs, that all he can do is come down the chimney, and he can't come down the chimney, at least he can't get out of the fireplace. Why not? "'asked Roderick, who was busy with an all-day sucker "'and not inclined to take a gloomy view of anything. "'Goosey!' cried Ernest in great disdain. "'I'll show you!' "'And he led Roderick with his sucker "'right into the best parlor where the fireplace was "'and showed him an awful thing. "'Of course, to the ordinary observer "'there was nothing awful about the fireplace. "'Everything in the way of bric-a-brac "'possessed by the Santa Maria flatters was artistic. "'It may have been in the least "'that only people with aesthetic tastes "'were to be admitted to the apartments.' However that may be, the fireplace, with its vases and pictures and trinkets, was something quite wonderful. Indian incense burned in a mysterious little dish, pictures of purple ladies were hung in odd corners, calendars and letters nobody could read served to decorate, if not educate, and glass vases of strange colors and extraordinary shapes stood about filled with roses. None of these things were awful, at least nobody would have dared to say they were. But what was awful was the formation of the grate. It was not a hospitable place with andirons where noble logs of wood could be laid for the burning, nor did it have a generous iron basket where honest anthracite could glow away into the nights. Not a bit of it. It held a vertical plate of stuff that looked like dirty cotton wool, on which a tiny blue flame leaped when the gas was turned on and ignited. "'You can see for yourself,' said Ernest tragically. Roderick could see for himself.' There was an inch-wide opening down which the friend of children could squeeze himself, and, as everybody knows, he needs a good deal of room now, for he has grown portly with age, and his pack every year becomes bigger, owing to the ever-increasing number of girls and boys he has to supply. "'Giminy!' said Roderick, and dropped his all-day sucker on the old bakara rug that Ernest's mama had bought the week before at a fashionable furnishing shop, and which had given the sore throat to all the family, owing to some cunning little germs that had come over with the rug to see what the American throats were like. Oh, me, yes, but Roderick could see, anybody could see, and a boy could see better than anybody. Let's go see the telephone boy, said Roderick. This seemed to be the wisest thing to do. When in doubt, all the children went to the telephone boy, who was the most fascinating person. With knowledge of the most wonderful kind, and of a nature to throw that of Miss Scheyerhada quite, quite in the shade, which, considering how long that loquacious lady had been in a shade, is perhaps not surprising. The telephone boy knew the answers to all the conundrums in the world, and a way out of nearly all troubles such as are likely to overtake boys and girls. But now he had no suggestions to offer, and could speak no comfortable words. "'He can't get into the front, and he can't get into the back, and he can't come down no chimney in this here house, and I'll tell you those.' he said, and shut his mouth grimly, while cold apprehension crept around Ernest's heart and took the sweetness out of Roderick's succor. Nevertheless, hope springs eternal, and the boys each individually asked their fathers, tremendously wise and good men, if they thought there was any hope that Santa Claus would get into the Santa Maria Flats, and each of the fathers looked up from his paper and said he'd be blessed if he did and the words sunk deep and deep and drew the tears when the doors were closed and the soft black was all about and nobody could laugh because a boy was found crying. The girls cried too, for the awful news was whistled up tubes and whistled down tubes till all twenty-six flat children knew about it. The next day was talked over in the brick court where the children used to go and shout and race. But on this day there was neither shouting nor racing. There was instead a shaking of heads, a surreptitious dropping of tears, a-guessing, and protesting, and lamenting. All the flat mothers congratulated themselves on the fact that their children were becoming so quiet and orderly, and wondered what could have come over them when they noted that they neglected to run after the patrol wagon as it whizzed round the block. It was decided, after a solemn talk, that every child should go to its own fireplace and investigate. In the event of any fireplace being found with an opening big enough to admit Santa Claus, a note should be left directing him along the halls to the other apartments." A spirit of universal brotherhood had taken possession of the Santa Maria flatters. Misery bound them together. But the investigation proved to be disheartening. The cruel asbestos grates were everywhere. Hope lay strangled. As time went on, melancholy settled upon the flat children. The parents noted it, and wondered if there could be sewer gas in the apartments. One overanxious mother called in a physician, who gave the poor little child some medicine which made it quite ill. No one suspected the truth, though the children were often heard to say that it was evident that there was to be no Christmas for them. But then, what more natural for a child to say? Thus hoping to win protestations, so the mothers reasoned, and let their mark pass. The day before Christmas was gray and dismal. There was no wind. Indeed, there was a sort of tightness in the air, as if the supply of freshness had given out. People had headaches. Even the telephone boy was cross and none of the spirit of the time appeared to enliven the flat children. There appeared to be no stir, no mystery, no whisperings went on in the corners, or at least so it seemed to the sad babies of the Santa Maria. It is as plain as a monkey on a hand organ, said the telephone boy to the attendants at his salon in the basement, that there ain't to be no Christmas for we. No, not for we." Had not Dorothy produced at this junction from the folds of her fluffy silken skirts several substantial sticks of gum, there is no saying to what depths of discouragement the flat children would have fallen. About six o'clock it seemed as if the children would smother for lack of air. It was very peculiar. Even the janitor noticed it. He spoke about it to Kara at the head of the back stairs, and she held her hand so as to let him see the new silver ring on her fourth finger, and he let go of the rope on the elevator to which he was standing and dropped to the bottom of the shaft, so that Kara sent up a wild hallo of alarm. But the janitor emerged as melancholy and unruffled as ever, only looking at his watch to see if it had been stopped by the concussion. The telephone boy, who usually got a bit of something hot sent down to him from one of the tables, owing to the fact that he never ate any meal save breakfast at home, was quite forgotten on this day, and dined off two russet apples and drew up his belt to stop the ache, for the telephone boy was growing very fast indeed, in spite of his poverty, and couldn't seem to stop growing somehow, although he said to himself every day that it was perfectly brutal of him to keep on that way when his mother had so many mouths to feed. Well, well, the tightness of the air got worse. Everyone was cross at dinner, and complained of feeling tired afterward, and of wanting to go to bed. For all of that it was not to get to sleep, and the children tossed and tumbled for a long time before they put their little hands in the big, soft, shadowy clasp of the Sandman, and trooped away after him to the happy town of sleep. It seemed to the flat children that they had been asleep but a few moments when there came a terrible burst of wind that shook even the great house to its foundations. Actually, as they sat up in bed and called to their parents or their nurses, their voices seemed smothered with roar. Could it be that the wind was a great wild beast with a hundred tongues which licked at the roof of the building? And how many voices must it have to bellow as it did? Sounds of falling glass, of breaking shutters, of crashing chimneys greeted their ears. Not that they knew what all these sounds meant. They only knew that it seemed as if the end of the world had come. Ernest, miserable as he was, wondered if the telephone boy had gotten safely home or if he were alone in the drafty room in the basement. And Roderick hugged his big brother who slept with him and said, Now I lay me, three times running, as fast as ever his tongue would say it. After a terrible time, the wind settled down into a steady howl like a hungry wolf, and the children went to sleep, worn out with fright and conscious that the bedclothes could not keep out the cold. Dawn came. The children awoke, shivering. They sat up in bed and looked about them. Yes, they did, the whole twenty-six of them in their different apartments and their different homes. And what do you suppose they saw? What do you suppose those twenty-six flat children saw as they looked about them? Why, stockings, stuffed full, and trees hung full, and boxes packed full. Yes, they did. It was Christmas morning, and the bells were ringing, and all the little flat children were laughing. For Santa Claus had come. He really had come. In the wind and wild weather, while the tongues of the wind licked hungrily at the roof, while the wind howled like a hungry wolf, He had crept in somehow, and laughing, no doubt, and chuckling without question, he had filled the stockings and the trees and the boxes. (laughs) Dear me, dear me, but it was a happy time. It makes me out of breath to think what a happy time it was, and how surprised the flat children were, and how they wondered how it could ever have happened. But they found out, of course. It happened in the simplest way. Every skylight in the place was blown off and away, and that was how the wind howled so, and how the bedclothes would not keep the children warm and how Santa Claus got in. The wind corkscrewed down into these holes, and the reckless children with their drums and dolls, their guns and toy dishes, danced around in the maelstrom and sang, Here's where Santa Claus came, this is how he got in, we should count it a sin, yes, count it a shame, if it hurt when he fell on the floor. Roderick's sister, who was clever for a child of her age, and who had read Monte Cristo ten times, though she was only eleven, wrote this poem, which everyone thought very fine. And, of course, all the parents thought and said that Santa Claus must have jumped down the skylights. By noon there were other skylights put in, and not a sign left of the way he had made his entrance. Not Neither the way mattered a bit. No, not a bit. Perhaps you think the telephone boy didn't get anything. Maybe you imagine that Santa Claus didn't get down that far. But you are mistaken. The shaft below one of the skylights went away into the bottom of the building, and it stands to reason that the old fellow must have fallen way through. At any rate, there was a copy of Tom Sawyer and a whole plum pudding and a number of other things, more useful but not so interesting, found down in the chilly basement room. <laughs> there were indeed. In closing, it is only proper to mention that Kara Johnson crocheted a white silk in hand necktie for Carl Carlson, the janitor. And the janitor smiled. The moral of today's stories is that you should never underestimate the power of love. Or Santa Claus. Thanks again to my friend Sharon Jewell for helping out with the gift of the Magi. And make sure you check out her links in the show notes. And of course, as you know, this is a Christmas special, and I've got another collaboration coming very soon. This episode releases on December 19th, and the collaboration I'm doing is with the Get Grim podcast. I'll be voicing some characters for a two-part story that Kayla from Get Grim is putting together. I've had a lot of fun recording it, and I think you'll enjoy it. So make sure you check that out. Part 1 drops on the 23rd, so that's this coming Sunday if you're listening on Wednesday, the day of release. And Part 2 will drop on Christmas Eve, and that's Monday, December 24th. So I very much encourage you to check that out. And while you are waiting, you can download her most recent episode, which is a History of Santa Claus that was really interesting. Get Grim, as you may know from the last episode where Kayla was a guest here, is a fairy tale podcast that releases every other week, and it's suitable for all ages. I'm a subscriber myself, and you should be too. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I would love it if you spread the word and leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send it in to syypodcast at gmail.com or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. I'm still collecting stories for season two and if you hurry you can still make the cut and even if you don't hurry that's okay too season three is right around the corner for a full list of music and sound effect credits please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com blog now when we meet again it'll be the first episode of season two i don't yet know when that will be but i'm planning for early 2019. for more specifics as time gets nearer make sure to follow the show on the social network of your choice at SYY Podcast. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. And we'll see you next time.